0: welcome to the real python podcast this is episode 37 one of the best ways to learn something well is to teach it this week on the show we have kelly schuster paredes and sean tyber from the teaching python podcast sean and kelly teach middle school students python and share their art and science of teaching python on their podcast they wanted to come on the show and talk about the real python articles quizzes and other resources they use when teaching their students we also talk about teaching students how to research topics and use things like advanced search with Google. We discuss using cloud based tools like collaborative notebooks and some of the core Python concepts students need for a solid foundation. Kelly and Sean also talk about how the changes to teaching over the past year have had some unexpected benefits. They also talk about a few recent guests and topics covered on their show. This week's sponsor is Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Try Linode today. With $100 in free credit for RealPython listeners, visit Linode.com slash RealPython. All right, let's get started. The RealPython podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hi, Sean and Kelly. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Chris. It's great to be here.
0: Hey, Chris. It was really fun being on your show back... I don't know if it seems like ages ago <laughs> this year. <laughs> so I was a little worried because uh, you didn't put on any other episodes after I was on.
1: <laughs> it was that COVID thing.
2: Yeah, it kind of went a little crazy. <laughs> well, on the plus side, your episode got a lot of downloads because we... yeah, <laughs> It sort of sat there yeah. by itself for a while. Yeah, you got a lot of episode uh, downloads because yours was the only one there for a couple months. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it
0: worked out pretty yeah, well. That's funny. <laughs> Partly why you kind of reached out to me is... To talk a little bit about how you're using Real Python, uh, not only yourselves but how you're using in class. But I wanted to start by talking about, like, why did you guys pick
2: to use Python as curriculum for your classes?
1: Well, you want me to start that one, Sean?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you were actually there for that conversation, Kelly. I was. That was before I started teaching.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we we always have had a computer science program at our school, K twelve, and we have the kids in the lower school going through the Scratch programming language, and they're pretty solid in it. And in seventh grade, it was kind of a hodgepodge of stuff, you know, a little bit of Swift, a little bit of uh, Legos and everything. And then in in the high school, they were working with JavaScript and I think Java, correct, Sean? Java? I don't know, in the higher levels. I don't teach up there. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, the AP courses are all taught in Java in the upper school.
1: Okay. So our boss called me in and and, uh, we had a good conversation and I was pushing for JavaScript just because that was one of the language I kind of knew. And we started researching a lot and we noticed that Python was... Like this up-and-coming language, and there was so much to do with it. And we heard about the BBC Microbit and the Python, MicroPython modules and that. And my boss was like, we're teaching Python.
2: (laughs) Cool. Do it or not. (laughs) Well, and so right after that conversation was when I came in as well. So I was hired in to teach computer science in the middle school alongside Kelly. And they said to me, okay, well, we're going to be you know, teaching Python in the middle school and they asked me, do you know any of it? And I said, well, no. In fact, it's been a few years since I've been in a developer role. I've been in more, you know, marketing and technology and things like that, that were less hands-on or, or detailed. So I said, no, but I'm willing to learn. And that was kind of how we got started. So Kelly and I, about three years ago, started this journey of learning Python so we could teach it.
0: And so you mentioned the, the BBC Micro:bit. And using that, is that still a central part of your curriculum?
1: It's part of our sixth grade curriculum. We spend about three to four weeks on it, and we've also introduced it into our robotics curriculum this year more in-depth, I should say. Sean's been doing a lot of work with coding and putting together a lot of the pieces, the ultrasonic sensor and everything with the microbit. But as we progress up the grades... It, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. We sometimes get into the circuit pies uh, playground, and Sean brings in all kinds of cool things he can tell you more about those.
2: <laughs> yep, so we in, in the upper grades in middle school, so we're talking like 12, 13-year-old kids. We really start to get into the the idea of, you know, more advanced coding concepts. We get into some of the circuit python based hardware when students are into that. And what we're really trying to do is match their interests with the, what python can do. And so we'll survey a lot of the different third-party libraries and popular tools. Matplotlib comes out quite a bit, PyGame, they love Turtle. Even as eighth graders, they love making circles and spirographs and things like that. And then I've had a number of students this year that have really gotten into a lot of the math capabilities of Python and using it to you know, validate and check their, their math homework. In the process, it sounds like
0: you use a, a variety of different, not only pieces of hardware and software packages, do you end up using a particular like IDE or teaching environment? and coding environment.
1: Oh, well, we we always start with my 6th grade. So we all we love Moo in 6th grade. We use that a lot. The interface is easy. The kids have, you know, the big the buttons are big, it's not scary, and it's just something easily to jump into. We often fall back to Replit because if, you know, a child has a loner tech or a laptop, we can just get on Replit and code right away. So those are the two that we use in sixth grade. And then in seventh grade, we like to introduce them to the CoLab notebooks just because the importing of the libraries is a lot easier for us. And then Sean does a little bit more in the eighth grade.
2: Yep. So by the time they get to eighth grade, they've seen a couple different editors. And this is the first chance where we kind of introduce them to a modern Python programming environment. So they might download an IDE like PyCharm or Visual Studio Code and then also install their own interpreter locally, you know, where Mew comes bundled with its own interpreter or Colab, it's built in and running on the, you know, Google servers this is their first chance where they're installing their own interpreter and getting used to how do I use the command line a little bit to make some of this happen and use IDEs to make my code editing a little bit easier or more flexible based on what my needs are as a student. So that eighth grade year is where they really start to transition from the all-in-one, really easy, simple to use to this more flexible, custom-designed environment that they get to create for themselves.
0: I was wondering about that. I have been teaching in a school system I taught in like a, a school for recording engineers and we were just at the beginning of, you know, maybe what Google was offering with like cloud-based documents and things like that. And I know a lot of educational systems are using Google Docs and and things like that. So I kind of wondered about these sort of cloud options. And so you mentioned a couple. Is that is that helpful in the sense that you can they can move keep their projects, move them around from home and back
2: and forth, especially with how schooling is right now with some in person and some not. For for sure. I mean, I think the nice thing about it is they're already used to the paradigm of the Google Doc, right? Okay. So because we've been a Google school and they've used it for several years, whether it's on a Chromebook or on their own laptop, when I go to introduce the Google Colab notebook, which is just Jupyter running on Google servers... All I have to do is tell them it's like a Google Doc, but you can also run Python code in it. And they kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's no problem. And they just, then we move on. So the paradigm's already there and they get a lot of the benefits of the sharing of the documents and being able to collaborate on it. It's not quite as real time as I'd like, but, you know, you can definitely see when someone's editing your document and making changes to it. Okay. And maybe uh, uh,
0: like way down the road to be like something where you teach them something like Git or something like that. At this point, the
2: collab is sufficient for, you know, working and sharing. Yeah, and it has its own, you know, version control in there. So we can at least talk to them about the concept of it's always being saved and you can go back in time and, you know, revisit your progress and everything. So it gives us some of those precursors to a Git style version control environment.
1: Oh, cool! And I think, like for for us in education for teaching with the with the collab notebook, you know, kids always forget to save, and it's like, oh no, I've lost my yeah. my code. But <laughs> <laughs> it it saves automatically, and it is nice when you know we're working in a, a version and the kids start adding in a whole bunch of things, and they get a little bit confused, we always tell them you can go back to the day before when the code was working yeah. and have a look at that. And it's such a nice feature. You could do that side-by-side comparison. And uh, Sean's used it a lot. We've used it a lot for me when I've got lost in someone else's code, on the student's code, and trying to understand where they've made up an error of 300 lines in. And uh, it's just nice to see it.
0: That's awesome. You wanted to come on and talk a little bit about how you guys are using some of Real Python's uh, resources. So I don't know who wants to start on this, but what what are the what types of resources are you using, and how are you using them?
1: Oh, we use a lot of them. <laughs> Great. Um, <laughs> I even um, so. I guess it's it's really important to say that Sean and I both uh, believe teaching the students how to understand informational text and text that they probably know less than 80% of the vocabulary. Okay. It's it's one of our important skills that we teach. We we like to give them agency and tell them listen, you know, all good coders know how to research. And we start right away in 6th grade and we've actually given them quite a bit of the real python articles for them to start off with. And it it's it's I don't make them read, you know, the twenty pages. Sometimes the articles are quite long. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so we kind of uh, make them a little bit simpler. But for example, the writing comments in Python guide. Okay, cool. I by by Jaya Zane. So if we go in there, I always start the sixth graders with with the part where it says how to write comments in Python. Here's a hashtag, and they they read about. The, the difference between, you know, multi-line comments and single line. And it's kind of nice because it raises that vocabulary of here's a syntax error. And if you do something with a, you know, a hashtag for a single comment, but you decide to go into multi-line, there's going to be an error. And it's just like a great little introductory to vocabulary that they've never seen before.
2: Nice. Yeah, I would add to that too. I mean, there's a really a variety of different ways that we employ the content to be able to help the students develop different skills. Researching is definitely one of them, and we also talk to them about how to determine whether a Google result is a useful resource or a trusted resource. So when they are searching for something, right, where, where they're starting for, how do I solve this problem, or I have a question about this, we help teach them how to formulate that search query, but then also examining the results because they're ingrained uh, habit at this point is to click on the first one, the first result. And if it doesn't come back with exactly what they need, they say, well, I can't find anything. This is, <laughs> this is ludicrous. There's nothing on Google that can help me. I tried.
0: Google spoiled them, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we go back and say, well, have you tried the second one or the third one? You know, so getting them to look deeper in the search results or to refine their search and make it more iterative in terms of their their queries. But then we also talk to them about like, well, what makes a good Source right. So sometimes the things that are the number one source are there because they've been you know, over optimized for SEO, and they're not actually useful for learning, or they're really useful for someone who's had five or ten years of development experience, and it's good for them, but it may not be good for you with five or ten days of coding experience, right? So we often direct them to Real Python because we know that you know there's some there's good quality articles there. Generally, there are going to be at the right level. Sometimes they're a little bit more advanced than they need right then. Okay. But if they're searching for something about how to use a list in Python and a real Python article comes up, we know that that's probably going to be appropriately leveled for them and their readiness to learn it.
0: Um, can I go back to that for a second and ask you a question about, yeah. it sounds like there's an iterative process to teaching a student to, to look for information on, on the internet. Are there like skills that you're trying to help them to develop, you know, like how to Google and how to, to how to write a good uh, query?
1: <laughs> oh, so I start with the basics in sixth grade because when they come in, they always like to just copy and paste that question. How do you find a list in Python and <laughs> type it out with a variable name, you know? And so we always start there just in the basics of you need probably four words, list. Python for beginners. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I start them with that very basic look. And then because I'm modeling the resources that I want them to go to, I always, you know, Geeks for Geeks always comes up first for them. And that's something simple, but it doesn't really have a lot of information except for example code. And... We try to send them to look at articles or specific videos that we know we have checked in the sixth grade, specifically. And the seventh grade is kind of like, you're on your own a little bit. You've had your lesson. And we kind of go from there in the basics just to get them into the search.
2: Are there other techniques that you use, Sean? Yeah. So we go into some more details of how to make a good search, right? So we, you know, in sixth grade, we're teaching them, you know, don't just search for how to make a list because you might end up with a grocery list. You should add Python to that. Then we also start to get them to look at more advanced search skills, like put in the version of Python that you're using, right? So maybe you want to use version 3.5 or 3.7 or 3.9. So put in the, the version that you're looking at. Then also, as you get into those results, you know a, a big source of a lot of their information is coming from Stack Overflow. Yeah. And so I'm getting them to look at those pages and know how to read Stack Overflow and see if it's appropriate for the question or the problem that they're trying to solve. You know, a big indicator for them is if you're seeing an article or a Stack Overflow question from 2011, the chances are <laughs> it's probably not that relevant for what you're trying to do today in 2020. Right. So maybe using some different search tools, you know, you can modify the the date range and things like that. But we start to get into these more advanced skills that help them narrow down and focus on their on their problem in a more specific and and you know, hopefully more fruitful way. And to Kelly's point, a lot of that's done through modeling the behavior. So we might try to solve a coding challenge together and I'll be up in front of the room doing the full sort of search that I would do as I'm trying to solve it also where I'm, you know, here's the problem, let me make sure I understand it. Now here's my first query and am I getting the right results? If not, then I'm going to modify it. And so we're talking about each step of that process of researching and refining searches to be able to get to more specific and relevant information. I used to teach at um at a law firm and a lot of the lawyers I was
0: teaching about we were Well, it was at a time when (laughs) they were having lots of problems with potential malware, and they were using Explorer, and they were using, you know, kind of fairly insecure tools, and so we were switching everybody over to Chrome, but also I was like, I think it would be really good if they knew how to use Google better. (laughs) So I spent time, you know, these are literally people that are researchers in in a lot of ways because they're lawyers, and they've been using things like LexisNexis and all these kind of advanced tools for that, and I was like, well, Google, you can actually a site colon, you know, and narrow it to a very specific right. site. There's like this whole set of these commands that a lot of people miss in that. I always forget some of them too, like the idea of like putting like a date range or just something simple, like just quotation marks to say, it needs to be worded like this, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> right. that, those are powerful things, I think, to teach a kid getting into this stuff.
2: And we also show them how to back into those keywords too, because if you, you know, pop open the advanced search window you can always, you know, type in what you want and then see how that modifies the query string that goes over to Google.
1: Yeah, and the kids in the and the in the lower levels, we, we like to lo- use the image search. Oh cool. Because when we're when we're importing mm-hmm. pictures into the turtle module in moo, we have to use a gif or I think also a png. So a lot of the times they can't find a good picture. And so we go in there and here's how you change the the type in an image search. And it, they're, they're impressed. They're like, oh, I never knew that was there.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can do like literally file type colon PDF kind of thing. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's why I like teaching lower levels because you can always surprise them and, and you, you, you look like you're having magic happen, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's always the funnest stuff. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux Virtual Machines develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier with 24/7 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started with Linode today. Visit linode.com/realpython. That's Linode, spelled L-I-N-O-D-E.com/realpython. Click on the create free account button and get $100 in free credit. Try Linode now. Are there other particular materials that you're using from RealPython?
1: Yes, of course. (laughs) Uh, So so the thing is, is I always have to double check that it's the free, a free version of it because, you know, Sean and I both have the paid version because we use it a lot for ourselves. But I, I find that a lot of the basics are free. Or if the first couple of parts of the article are free, and that's usually as far as I go with the 6th and 7th graders, but we're actually, we love the Beginner's Guide to Python Turtle. Oh, yeah. And the little game that's at the bottom, it's um, by Nikita. I don't, I'm not going to try to say her last name. I'm sorry, Nikita. Um, But... It's so fun. And the, the kids like to do the, the full game and they have the little turtle rushing across. Oh, the race, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. the race. And um, <laughs> I've had some kids modify it a little bit and get in there and change it. But that's like the introductory. They have a choice of either doing this one or another hour of code that I set up. And you know, half the kids read the whole article from Real Python's Guide to Python Turtle. It's great.
0: There's a video course of that.
2: Uh, coming shortly from Darren Jones.
0: Um, just Awesome. Yeah,
2: I'm excited to get that one out there. <laughs> <laughs> we also use a lot of content, not just for research purposes, but really to kind of front load some of the learning. So instead of us getting up there and talking first, we give them content to read or review and, and look at so that we can, you know, when we get into the classroom, our we start right away with a conversation or a discussion or examples or something that's more interactive and engaging, rather than us just, you know, spewing forth information. So a lot of the ways that we do that are through the um, these things we made called choice boards. So this is kind of Kelly's innovation that she's brought to our classroom this year, and it seems to be working pretty well. But the idea is that instead of an assignment where you have to do this thing, then the next thing, and the next thing, we give them a document each week that has four or five different activities that they could choose from to complete. And some of them are required, like you have to do these two, but then pick another one that's your choice to do. So out of the Four or five, they might have to do three of them, and they can choose the order that they do them in. They can do them, um, you know, one after another, but they and they don't have to do all of them. Although some of our students do, and we found that using some of the real Python articles and quizzes have really helped us for that. So great examples like the the basic data types article that has like it has a video course with it, it has um, the quiz with it, and we use that a lot at the beginning of our courses to get students to review the material and then use the quiz that goes along with it to be able to assess any gaps in their knowledge, right? So... You know, a student who goes through that and gets an eight or a nine out of 10 on the quiz correct is probably doing pretty good and remembers a lot of the materials if they're an older student or has really good reading and comprehension skills as a sixth grader. But someone who gets like a two or three out of 10 might need to go back and review it again, and we can use that as a prompt to get them to, you know, take another look at the material and make sure they really understand it. It's been really cool to see because you know, as soon as they see quiz, they start thinking grades. Like, where's my grade? Like, Are you grading <laughs> right. this? Am I gonna am I gonna fail? And when we can tell them, no, no, this is for yourself, right? This is so that you know. What you need to learn and where your gaps are, and you can kind of see some of them have that little light bulb moment where they say, "Oh okay, okay, I think I get it it's you know it's not optional, but you know, like if I get a two out of ten, the world's not going to come <laughs> to a screeching halt or anything
1: and I love it the other day, one of the students I don't know how the conversation started, but Sean walked in and we were talking about data types, and the kid goes to Sean, yeah, so what is a point?" quizzing him what is a point you know four e seven <laughs> or something i can't remember what it was and i was like what is he talking about oh yeah i forgot i needed a <laughs> that was a complex number or whatever and floating point number sorry and uh, it was just funny because they they start getting knowledge that is not necessarily specifically taught in class yeah And sometimes I have to go back and I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot I signed that in uh, RealPython. I better go back and read that article. (laughs)
2: That's too funny. (laughs) Yeah. It's great because they come in. They're like, "I'm confused by irrational numbers in Python." I'm like, "Me too." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am.
0: (laughs) We can bring David Emerson here to help us.
2: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And you know what? The most important part of that exercise, though, is really we ask them to do a reflection on what they learned. What's write down two things that are new that you learned, and one thing that still confuses you. So that we get a better sense of what they're looking for and what they need help with, and then we can kind of tailor our in the classroom to help them resolve some of that confusion or, you know, explore some things that they really are excited about. So that reflection part of the learning is really the most critical piece.
0: So when I was teaching at the recording school, we started to have, we used Moodle, which was like our tool for creating online curriculum. I don't know if you're familiar with um, those things. Yes. Yeah. And it was brand new for us. And so what, Uh, we were able to do is something similar to what you're talking about, where we could front load. Our system was cyclical. Um, There would be, you know, like three-week cycles that people would move through uh, as they, you know, progressed through the curriculum. And so that what was an idea was to create this cycle zero, which was entirely online, but you could basically assign a bunch of reading, a bunch of quizzes, and initial stuff to, again, keep it out of the classroom. Because some of that stuff can be what somewhat tedious to do a lecture on and could probably be done through a video or be done through, you know, just simply article reading. So I think that's great. I think that's a real powerful way. You know, also it's Helping you learn and assess, you know who is going to need more on hands-on help, um, and who's going to be able to be able to be able to assign stuff to and be able to kind of run with it and continue to, you know, like if you give them the right resources, they'll be able to run and and keep going forward, which is really cool. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I would add also, I think that that whole reflective piece, the metacognitive approach of learning about how you learn, is really critical, yeah. even if you don't have a teacher, right? <laughs> so if you are by yourself learning Python, writing down here are the things that I know and the new things that I learned, and then here are the things that I'm confused by is a great way to at least start that process of reflection and figuring out how you need to learn the next big piece of Python. And I think that I just stole Kelly's comment
1: on this. <laughs> I was just sitting here <laughs> laughing. So, so I just want you guys to all appreciate this this these beautiful words that are coming out of Sean's mouth, you know, metacognition, learning how to learn. <laughs> I just want to say that my work here is done. I no longer need to train him as being a teacher. You're retiring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm retired. He's doing such a great job. Now, I mean, adding on to that, that whole business of front loading. I don't know about Sean or or you Chris after teaching for so long teaching the basics of here type prints here type function that just gets so boring so i would rather just front load the kids on the basics and then go straight into code alongs and i you know i'm starting to make stuff up i'm feeling comfortable in class where i can just go i've never coded this before let's try this out and i don't have to waste and i say waste but waste my time going over the basics and the kids can kind of jump in and they're like, oh yeah, I, I read that or I saw that or I watched this video. Right. So it's just a, it's just a nice way to have more fun in the classroom.
0: Right. Make it way more interesting and on topic yeah. And, and yeah, get those like yeah, light bulbs going off.
1: <laughs> absolutely. We we love the light bulbs. So we wait for those, but it's just a good way.
2: Yeah. And I have to say, I'm I have to say I'm really proud of Kelly here too. I mean, this is the other side of it. So when we started this, you know, three years ago, this was it was my first year teaching. I'd never taught in a classroom before, uh, but I was a fairly experienced coder technical sort of person, and Kelly had never written code before. Ed uh, was a very experienced teacher. so this combination of the two of us coming together, you know she's proud of me for being able to say big words like metacognition, but the fact that she's <laughs> up there coding along and and creating Python jazz in front of the room and improving it makes me really happy to see how far she's progressed over the last three years too.
0: So you mentioned that sometimes you'll share some of uh, video content and uh, mix it up with some of the articles. Are there particular types of video content that works well for teaching students?
1: Well, the most of the kids find the, com- the comments video versus reading it. Okay. <laughs> I, try to, I try to send them to their reading because we are trying to teach that skill. And we do, we do provide them with other video clips. I make a lot of the basics yeah. The very basics on screencast uh, after our learning cycle that we went through um, last last year with learning how to record good videos. Um, I don't know where we learned that from, <laughs> but uh,
2: I think it's episode forty eight on our <laughs> podcast with Christopher Bailey. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's funny.
1: Oh, is that where? I can't remember. <laughs> so, yeah, we make a lot yeah. of our own screencasts, and I put that up.
2: I'll, I'll <laughs> put a link in the show notes. <laughs> that's my job this time.
1: <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> he's funny. and then I also, um, I always say Sentdex. I always do a lot of his videos. I know that's not real Python, but he has very short three-minute videos. And
2: What was the name again, sir?
1: Sentdex. S-E-N-T-D-E-X. He's great okay. he's fun
2: <laughs> yeah, I think what what we really appreciate about the real Python videos is the you know chapter markers and the way that it's chunked to, into pieces um one of the things that we noticed with the younger students, and I think it's true across, you know, a lot of age groups, is that it's hard to sit down and watch a 25-minute long video about a topic without having some sort of roadmap for where you are and where you're going. So the, the chunking into smaller chapters really helps our students, you know, navigate like, oh, here's what I need to learn next, or I have three minutes to go in this one, and then I'm going to take a break, and, and I can pause here and go on uh, to it again when I'm ready to resume.
1: And you'll be really happy to know that we do use your video on the list. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> We like, we like that one. I, I do skip around. I don't put them through a lot of it. I, I do do the indexing and I can't remember um, that one's the free one too. I know the first couple and I do talk about mutability and we don't really go into tuples too much in the sixth grade. I just kind of, kind of say that but they like that one that one's easy and i see a lot of the um is in uh, references in their lists. what's that's nice
0: this week i want to shine a spotlight on another real python video course it covers a set of fundamental concepts needed for everyone starting to learn python it's also the course that kelly mentions she shares with most of her students it's titled basic data types in python the course is based on a Real Python article by John Sturtz. And in the course, instructor Darren Jones takes you through the basic numeric, string, and Boolean types that are built into Python, what objects of these types look like, and how you can represent them. And it also has an overview of Python's built-in functions, which are pre-written chunks of code that you can call to do useful things. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn these basic beta types in Python. And like most of the video courses on Real Python. The course is broken into easily consumable sections. It also has a shiny new transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. This is kind of shifting a little bit. What, what are things that you guys have covered this year uh, on your podcast?
1: Oh. So much. I just learned about Beware.
0: Uh, Yeah, Russell's great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just made my first mobile tutorial app. I followed along and had Hello, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) And we had Allie a couple of weeks ago. Allie Spittle.
2: Yeah. Spittle. Spittle, yep.
1: Spittle. Sorry. She got me into Django Girls tutorial. So I've been stumbling through that, which she's got some great videos. I don't know her name from Django Girls, but her videos are great. Sean, who else do we have?
2: Oh, we had uh, Eric Mathis is uh, on an upcoming episode. So we had him back to talk about making projects happen in school and what makes a good project for learning, right? Um, And getting students engaged and interested. So that one's coming up probably as soon as I can get it edited later today. And we've got, we've just been having a really good conversation about all the changes with with the way we're teaching this year, the the things that we've been able to do with remote learning that have actually enhanced the, the learning yeah. experience for our students. I was wondering about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think programming in general can be such a demanding subject in that you have to be able to focus and think through the problems that you're trying to solve. And in a normal classroom, it can often be fairly distracting when there's a lot of other kids moving around and, you know, there's always noises and sounds and things like that. And so our students that are at home have often pulled ahead of their peers in the classroom because they can hit the mute button on the classroom and focus in on what they're trying to learn and create this environment Mm. where they can really think. And I believe that that's something that we don't often create for our students is the space to think and have some time to really delve into a problem in a way that is meaningful and relevant. And so if there's been a silver lining to all this distance learning, it's the ability to show them that space and help them think through a problem in a deep and meaningful way.
1: I think when people ask us how did we handle covid and I think Sean and I both were we said, "Oh, it was great, you know." I got so far with the teaching. I saw a seventh grader, one of my seventh graders this year who had me fourth quarter last year. The kid is a coding superstar. Wow. And I guess when they were locked up, I, he was also the one that was asking Sean about the numbers and complex numbers. The kid,
0: <laughs> Sure.
1: I, I'm like, did I teach you last year? It's amazing. And But they just had so much time during the summer and by themselves, they weren't allowed to go out. And, yeah. Um, I think computer science, and as long as you have someone to mentor you and you have the resources available to you, I think it's one of those subject areas where, I mean, we've all learned, most of us have learned on our own anyways, but it's one of those areas where kids can just go and thrive. You point them in the right direction. Here's this tutorial, here's this editor, and just go. And they are really feeling successful, I think. So it's, it's quite a nice...
0: I was wondering about, we include materials with the video courses like like PDFs and code samples. And I, I wonder in some cases if that's helpful um, for you guys in teaching.
1: I have not utilized code samples. I find that sometimes when the kids get a whole code, they'll just skip. Uh Okay. They don't like to read. So I try to avoid giving them documentation. I tend to send them to the book and and I don't tell them that most of the stuff is on GitHub. Right. You know, I try to avoid that because I find, and Sean and I both agree that when the kids are typing, they're making those errors. Yeah. And the fact that they're making errors, there's a name error, there's a syntax error. It's just teaching them to be more cognizant about their typing. And the more they type... the more they learn so i try to avoid code samples where they can copy and paste
0: is this a place where they're learning to type for the first time too
1: um no they've used they've typed in the past but some of the characters you know like the asterisk or the curly brackets oh yeah it's they're items that they don't really use on a on a normal basis you know hashtags right although they use them on their phone
2: <laughs> sure
1: <laughs> <But> <laughs> i don't know so it's it's they're still using that peck and and look kind of thing at the beginning.
2: It, it is kind of fun because I do tell them from time to time or at the beginning of the course to really look at your keyboard and look at every single character that's on their keyboard because at some point they will use it in Python. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, pretty much. Like, And they discover keys that they have never pressed before, except maybe by accident. And I, I give them names for everything. We build a lot of vocabulary around just the characters that they're using. And so they're really having to think about what they're typing and why.
1: Yeah, what was the name... Yeah, what was the name of the one that? And I was like, oh, I didn't know what that was called. You said it in class. Uh, the other day.
2: What was it? I the forget. curly brace?
1: No, it was like a modulus one, but it wasn't the modulus. I forget. Oh, but I was like, sign, oh, That's what that's that, a
0: modulo. Yeah. No, no, it was
1: something else. He said, I forget. I'll think of it later. I always do. And and the pipe. I was like, and that's a pipe. I'm like what?
0: <laughs> what do you mean pipe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you end up using a lot of them. I'm um, just looking at it.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, you never actually look at your keyboard until you're like, wait a minute, I've used this for. Okay, that's the for comments. This one's for modulo. Here's the uh, you know tilde that we use sometimes for. You know, it, everything has a purpose. Yeah. The last area that really has been useful for us is for the long form tutorials on Real Python. So we bake in time in our course for our students to be able to demonstrate their learning. Um, So they have time to to really explore a topic on their own and, and show how they've integrated all this newfound knowledge together. And a lot of students will go to, say, the arcade tutorial that just came out, I think, this year or late last year to be able to make a game and they yeah. can go through that in detail. I had one student who came up with the making a binary search in Python, and wow. I don't think she really understood what she was getting into. She says, it looks interesting. <laughs> and then I think about halfway through, she's like, how about, how about um, I do something with Turtle instead? And I said, no, 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 you got to stay on the binary search. It's, it's way better than you think it's going to be. Uh, <laughs> but those longer form tutorials have been really helpful for giving a student the ability to work through a longer, more complex project at their own pace and see how something fits together with the commentary and the feedback from the author to say, not just here's a bunch of code, but here's why I'm doing this, or here's why we're doing this next step, and here's how it builds on the previous steps. So that's been really useful for our students to delve into a deeper, longer project towards the end of their uh, their learning.
1: Yeah, and then wh- last year when I was running out of things to talk about because we passed our curriculum that we were supposed to be doing in seventh grade, we actually did the, uh, it was like a facial recognition one from RealPython. I don't yeah. remember which one it was called, but it was a short tutorial and we could go in there and upload a, a picture and it was pretty cool.
0: There's a new, uh, pretty recent one that's a, Sort of introduction to data science and modeling science.
1: I saw that. I, I actually bookmarked it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that would be really good. And we just got the video version of that one that came out. And it's kind of short and you're modeling a movie theater, which I think a lot of people, I mean, obviously it's a little kind of sad right now, but a lot of people can relate to the idea of like, okay, there's all these you know positions and if I was going to be the manager of this place. And there's so many like games that kids probably could think of like, you know, they play themselves to optimize the flow of all these different, be it resources or whatever, you know, all the types of games that are out there, that this is the, a way they could do that through sort of data science. And it's fairly short, which I, I think would be an okay topic for kids to get into.
1: Yeah. What was the I, I think I actually, I was, I saw it the other day and I bookmarked it. It was going in, it, going in and also managing the amount of people or yeah. something in... Yeah, I, I, that's out on my to on my own personal to do list. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anything data science. I always go and I, I search at, because they have the Django one on there as well.
0: Well, I have these weekly questions that I like to ask everybody who comes on the show, and uh, I guess we could start with you, Sean. And, and if you have to go, sure. So, what's something that you're excited about right now in the world of Python?
2: Oh, well, I'm. Really excited to delve deeper into Python 3.9. I think that's the third time I've said delve this podcast, so <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> it's but, good. But, Get your minor uh, hat on. <laughs> yeah. So one of the projects that I did last year, and I need to update it for this year, is a web-based bell schedule for our middle school. So just a simple serverless function that goes through and and each day tells you the schedule for that day in JSON format. So you can use it in a lot of different things. But when I did it, I had to do it all with you know time zone support and everything because I wanted it to be fairly robust uh, They cover yeah. daylight savings times and things like that. So I'm really excited about the uh, new built-in support for time zone information in Python 3.9. And so one of the things that I have on my my to-do list is to rewrite that for our new Uh, you know, weird COVID schedule that we're doing, but also to upgrade it to Python 3.9 so that I can use all that built-in stuff instead of having to go to a third-party library for it. Nice. And uh, what's something that you want to learn next? Uh, Well, the big thing on my list next is another, you know, utility library that I created for an API that we have at our school to manage all of our iPads. And the next thing I want to learn is how to create effective mock objects for the testing library that I wrote for it or the test suite that I wrote for it, so instead of hitting the API with live data that it actually runs everything against you know mocked objects or or uh, fake requests so it's something that i I have on my list to learn next because I think once I get the hang of it, it can be really useful in a lot of other areas too okay, cool. do you have to go right now uh yeah I, I do have to split I'm supposed to be somewhere at noon and I have about a ten minute drive so I'm down to the wire I think but <laughs> this has been really fun to, to reconnect, Christopher, and, and talk through yeah. everything with real Python. It was so awesome to talk to you again, too. All right. Take care, Christopher. Bye, Kelly.
0: Bye. So what are you excited about in the world of Python right now? I guess it could be like an event or, or a book or what have you.
1: So I have been dreaming of this project, and I'm just starting to map out my idea clearer, clearly, I guess. Um, it's been something I've talked about since I've, we first interviewed Eric a year ago, Eric Mathis, and it's this idea of of making this database on on skills for for students. And we just recently spoke to Eric Mathis, and he kind of gave me some motivation. And he's got a lot of information and a lot of uh, code. Code of I think it's also in his book about data science okay, so I've been using that and hacking through that. that's kind of where the the Django tutorials came in where I thought you know I need to get something up on the web, so I have a place to put my dashboard for education so that's kind of my project. I'm really far behind every time Sean looks at me I've gone and found like six (laughs) different ways to put in a a a CSV or I'm like, I don't know which one should I use. So I'm back down to the basics of just listing out the things and and kind of going there. Sean's project for me though, because he's always pushing me, is um, really getting into doing more of the GitHub and Trying to fork, he's been sending me these codes and making me learn how to fork things and add stuff to it. <laughs> tried to use the hack, try to do the Hacktoberfest with Git, but it, it, you know, I, I just didn't get there.
0: <laughs> so much going <laughs> okay. on. There's a lot going on, yeah, especially in, with school too. So
1: yeah. Absolutely. And then I just, we just bought the beyond the basic stuff with Python from Al and Ah, I'm on the early release one, the early access PDF. And I just reading that it's, it's so great and seeing all the, he's just an easy reader, you know, it's one of those things you just kind of can keep going with it. So it's nice. Well, that's a lot on my, a lot of little things.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it. That's cool. Are you hosting it? um, Like, does the school provide you space or you, you set that up yourself to host this Django thing?
1: Uh, just on myself right now, I haven't gotten very far. Everything's locally. Okay. I actually, I'm actually working in a collab notebook right now, because every time I go in, I have I've been on a personal fight between whether I'm going to use PyCharm or Visual Studio.
0: <laughs> sure. So,
1: so every, <laughs> I was getting used to Visual Studio with the Lego programming, but I don't know. I liked PyCharm, and then I don't know the whole VM. V E N V, I don't know how you guys pronounce it, VEM space is uh, a lot for a new person. Yeah. And you get kind of lost. And I was also doing. Terminal, so learning all about terminal and kept. Oh,
0: that's great in his book.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was yelling at Russell saying, "Why terminal?" In our last episode, <laughs> <laughs> I have to listen to that. <laughs> and he, gave, yeah, it's a great one. He explained it really well, and I was because I was just like, "Why do I have to install Beware through Terminal when I could just go into my Finder and make my own folder?" And I think there's that things that happen with newbies. You know, we do stuff because that's the way the programmers had always learned how to do stuff. So it's it's one of those things that you have to be cognizant of when you're teaching someone who's never coded before. Yeah, totally. So
0: What do you want to learn next? I mean, you mentioned several things there, but uh, is there any other specific <laughs> things that you want to learn next?
1: No, we're just, um, I think Sean and I both are rethinking how can we do stuff different in our class. We always change. We try not to change too much during the year, Yeah, but in the end we always do because we get, you know, we get bored, we're going to do the card game or we'll do something else. And I think just being able to make and show them more examples, they end up producing other things for us. So I don't know, we, we're making all kinds of things. Sean's made all kinds of crazy hardware stuff yeah. in the classroom and, <laughs> you know, you you name it, we've we've tried it, so...
0: uh, I need somebody to give me those assignments, (laughs) so I get Uh, them done. Well, you can, (laughs) (laughs) because I have a bunch of the hardware at my house here, and I just like have not been making the time. I've been, you know, getting all these other things going. So
1: (laughs) we decided to ditch the the micro:bit kits where they already have the robot designed, and you know, there's a whole bunch of different kits out there for the micro:bit robots. And we're making our own, and we're piecemealing it. We've made up these little Ziploc bags of, for all the students, and we've given them ultrasonic sensors and, oh, cool. and deep boards, breakout boards, and breadboards and jumper cables and and wires. So we'll, we'll we'll send you some of that stuff, and you can uh, you can uh, compete with us. We're going to do
0: battlebots. So. All right, <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> Hopefully,
1: <Yeah.
0: laughs> cool. What were things that that you were happy about? the change from you know switching from teaching potentially teaching javascript to now teaching python what what are changes about you know teaching those different languages that that you enjoy that has made that easier for you i guess
1: mm. i think for me working with Python versus the other codes. And I I guess I should say more like looking into Swift because we also looked into using that. I just think it's something more tangible. I, I feel like you can easily jump in. We take kids that have never coded before in a, in a language, maybe a little bit of Scratch. And in nine weeks, we have them coding, you know, 200, 300 lines of code and making up their own apps. They've made Mad Libs, they've done designs with Turtle. And these are things that aren't like, box. They're not finding it off the web and copying and pasting it. They're actually coding their own stuff. So I think that's that's the one thing I really love about Python. I can guarantee, and I say this to all the parents when they're freaking out that their child is stressed out the first two weeks. <laughs> I say, I'm like, I've done this 28 times in three in two and a half years. I promise you that by the end of the nine weeks, your kid is going to be begging to come back to class. And it, and it and it's happened I've maybe one or two kids it has and I know that sounds a little bit egotistical but it's be- not because of me it's because of the language oh, you know that's cool. python is just something that's so awesome that if you know the kids want to build an app i can give them that if they want to draw with python or turtle i can give them that if they want to use hardware i can give them that and i just think that it's one of those languages that is accessible and that's kind of why i love it
0: that's awesome Well, I really want to thank you guys for coming on the show and it was was so much fun talking to you again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean, we love, we love what you guys do and you're such, such a um, great resource for us at school that we just wanted to say thank you.
0: All right. we will talk to you soon.
1: All right. Thanks, Chris.
0: Get started with Leno today. Visit linode.com slash realpython and get $100 in free credit when you create your account. Try Linode now. I want to thank Kelly and Sean for coming on the show. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host,
2: Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.